Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the TFA EPL Podcast. We are the Thinking Fans Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and stat heads. We are sponsored by the EPL Prospectus, a 280-page guide of the upcoming season created by a team of 25-plus writers and designers. Moneyball for football, analytics plus eye candy, available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Today, we are joined by I Got Your Back soccer analyst Harshal Patel. Also on the pod is Dre Fortune, a professional creative attacking midfielder for North Carolina FC. I'm host Chris Mumford, known as the Professor Bella Chow. What a strange week for football. Underdogs did particularly well. We saw that five out of the big six teams either tied or lost in the Premier League. Uh, We saw uh, Juventus, Atalanta, uh, and Inter all lose. And we also saw, or tie, and we also saw in La Liga, Barcelona, Real Madrid, and Sevilla tie or lose. So something's amiss here. Uh, Unfortunately, we're going to have some time to chat about all these things. Of course, we're going to focus on the Premier League. Harshel, why don't you get us started first on that Everton-Liverpool FC match? Yeah, and um, so coming into the weekend, I think this was one of the games that everybody was looking forward to because of the start that Everton have had to the season. And uh, it did live up to it. You know, It was one of the best, I think, most competitive Merseyside derbies in recent years. Even though I would say Liverpool probably should have won it uh, in terms of the chances they created and the territory and the possession they had. But Everton were able to hold um, them away to an extent and obviously get the goals um, when they when they had the chances. But what I found quite interesting was the fact that you, you so the system in which Everton set up in terms of uh, the formation that Ancelotti has been employing, you need them to be compact between the lines when they don't have the ball. And for the first goal, which Mane scored, it was ridiculous the amount of space that they left between the lines uh, for that Liverpool attack to develop. So uh, that that is something I think that, and I mean, like you can maybe argue that the game had just started. It, it was barely even 10 minutes into the game when the goal happened. But at the same time, I, my opposition to that would be that you should ideally be at absolute 100% concentration, especially towards the beginning of the match. So, I think Ancelotti would be a little bit concerned with how they conceded that goal. Uh, but other than that, I thought they were clinical in terms of their, uh, in terms of the goals that they did score. Because, especially with the second goal, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, that header was absolutely brilliant. Textbook centre-forward player that shows how much he's evolved this season with that leap to get up on top of, I think it was Andy Robertson, and to get the ball into the corner. And even otherwise, he, he uh, whenever sort of Everton turned, uh, I mean, needed to win the ball back and put pressure on the Liverpool back line, he was, he was chasing the ball down, he was running the channels, holding it up and then fo- dragging the Everton team up the pitch with him. So, it's been a brilliant sort of start to the season for him and he ended the season really strongly last time around as well. So, it's, uh, it's, he's, he's really developed quite a lot. So, I'm, those are some of the key points in terms of tactics that I took away. But about you? Obviously, Dre and Chris, I would like to know what do you guys think about the fact that we don't have Van Dyke now for the next seven, eight months? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I will tell you, my, my take on things is that should have been, a, we need to change the rules. As And I'm, I'm a former goalkeeper. 
and I when I saw that, it was just not acceptable whatsoever. And and you you absolutely ruin a season. And I think you completely change the the dimensions of the game. Uh, you know, my sense is is that the odds just got a lot better for Man City and the contenders. Um, I will tell you, uh, if you look at the stats, um, uh, Gomez and Matip um, did absolutely brilliantly. They did very well in their defensive duels, um, over 85% for the two of them combined. And quite honestly, the two goals that got scored were two headers, uh, right? And that Calvert-Lewin header, that second one, you know, I think Henderson... Calvert Lewin matchup. We know who's going to win that day in and day out. I'd actually think that Trent Alexander Arnold is having a bit of a slow start this, this season. He was the one that, that allowed for that yep. cross. If you look at where most of the dangerous uh, plays were coming from, it was from the, the left side. And of course, you've got Mane there, but I really think Robertson is really firing on all cylinders. Um, and then that first. That, that first goal with Keane, that was a few minutes after um, Virgil van Dyke was injured. They were still trying to get organized. Still not an excuse, but that's uh, you could you could easily see why why that would happen. Um, Dre, what, what was your take on the game? What did you get out of it? Yeah, um, I think I think the biggest talking point, obviously, is the impact that it's going to have losing van Dyke for, if not the rest of the season, a very long time for Liverpool. So. Um, you know, he's, he's a huge staple in, in how they defend. And honestly, you know, he contributes a lot going forward as well in terms of playing passes out the back and even scoring goals. So I think, I think it's definitely going to be interesting to look at. Um, he makes the players around him better and, and they're definitely going to miss him. And then also, I mean, I, when I was, you know, growing up and watching the Premier League, Everton was always kind of that team that was on the fringe, top six kind of thing. And I think they're kind of regaining that that strength a little bit, which, uh, which is nice to see. I think they've started off the season really well. And because they've added players such as Thomas and, and strengthened up the midfield with Allen and, um, was it Decor? Yeah. I, I think, I think they've been really good since then. And Calvert Lewin stepped up and he's, he's had really strong performances and, and shown what he can do. So, um, you know, the game itself wasn't, wasn't too surprising to me. I, I, I thought Everton, you know, with their strong start that they, they held their own and, I think the most important thing uh, from my perspective is to see how Liverpool is going to adjust and, and, and go forward without Van Dyke. I don't want to go down this rabbit just, hole. Just Arch on that. Yeah, go ahead. I, I, let me ask you yeah, this just, question. Um, um, but what, yeah. as far as that goal being called back uh, in Jordan, my sense is, is that the rules have got to change, right? I mean, it, it's... The intent, I think, is not being carried out on the result. And it just, it's a bit of a heartbreaker where you have a lot of drama. And admittedly, I'm, I, I tend to favor Liverpool more than Everton. I just feel like because of technology, the league is really struggling with how to accommodate that new technology. And I think City I and, and the other leagues are a little farther ahead. Any, any notes on that? So what I gathered from whatever, obviously the match itself and then discussions on social media and all of that is the fact that the VAR obviously was checking for offside in that particular uh, incident, which is why, because Van Dijk was offside, it wasn't, I mean, you couldn't give a penalty because the, the previous action was offside. So then the, the, the foul could not be given as a foul and then a penalty. But at the same time, 
there's you can send a player off for violent con- conduct but the point is that according to the var or the referee or whoever that that tackle did not constitute violent conduct it was foul play but according to the rules you can only give out a red card for violent conduct if it's done when the ball is not in play which is what the situation was at that time so i mean i don't know it, it then comes down to whether you consider that that was violent conduct or not mm-hmm. whether he was deliberately going to uh, injure van dijk which I, i don't think that was the case it was a reckless challenge obviously but i don't think he's going out there to deliberately try and injure him so it it just came down to the interpretation of the referee as to whether it was violent enough for him to basically tell the on pitch referee that you know what you need to send him off for that but it's obviously had a huge impact because you Liverpool have lost probably the best defender in the world and the guy who makes their defense better for the majority of the season so yeah it it comes down to the interpretation and what the referee thought of that i hear you so dre um how do you think tiago's uh impact has been on liverpool uh and where do you see that going forward and i'm just also as a sideline after that is what tell us what your take on everton's midfield is how how they've been co- coming together um so yeah i mean tiago's a player that i rate highly i mean i i used to watch bayern munich just to watch tiago to be honest so um i i really respect him and, and enjoy watching his play he's definitely going to come in and help you know string passes together and then break lines going forward i mean you can see on the the goal that was disallowed there the pass he picks up from on and not many people are picking that out so um yeah. no i i really appreciate Thiago's play and i think he's going to push that liverpool midfield to be you know that much better for the rest of the season and then going into everton's midfield as you're talking about i think they strengthen tremendously i mean you have a player like sigurdsson who's been quality for everton over the years and you know from the start of the season he struggled a bit to really get into the team and then and, and um and find a place which i think is interesting uh and that's just because of the quality that they have so uh i i really i really be interested to see how they progress throughout the season um obviously i think one of the one of the biggest things for the premier league is being able to maintain form over long periods of time so hopefully they'll be able to do that and and sustain the quality that they started with but i think it'll be very very fun to watch harshal any final notes on the the everton liverpool game um just that again when we speak about the ar obviously they brought up the liverpool goal that was scored which is disallowed which could have been the winner which henderson scored uh again it came down to millimeters and that's because the offside rule has been changed as well as in, in the premier league in terms of where you can basically be offside now where it was earlier the shoulder now it's the armpit or something like that i could be completely getting this wrong as well but that's how confusing it is or at least if not confusing that so much the rule has changed where it's coming down to millimeters and i and i put this out on social media as well where if you have at one point on one hand you have we are making those sort of calls where it's a question of millimeters and that's been given as offside but at the same time they're not intervening in terms of cases where you know arguably pickford should have been sent off i think that's that's where they need to work um and try and improve uh, the way it's implemented because in my view i mean that mane goal even if it was given as a goal would have been fine it's it's that close a decision that you can choose to be sub- uh, sort of you know get it subjectively correct but you'd need to get these ones wrong because uh, i mean sorry you need to get these ones correct because as as we've already mentioned it's a huge impact on the game and the season and the players not even forget it a red card is not even not even been given a booking so 
I think in terms of VR, that's what they need to look at going forward. I, I will tell you, if there is the worst time of year to be missing your starting center back and your starting keeper uh, is now, f uh, keep in mind that Liverpool is going to play Ajax. Uh, they're going to play Atalanta twice. They're going to play Man City and Liverpool uh, all within the next uh, five weeks. So uh, that's just, that's a heartbreaker, particularly for Champions League play for Liverpool. Um, now, of course, we, I think we all believe that they have the quality to overcome that, but man, things have just gotten a whole lot harder. Um, while as yet Everton's schedule is uh, all Premier League, um, they do have to play Man United uh, in Leeds uh, as well as Chelsea in the next, um, uh, really in the next six six weeks. So they've got a lot more time um, to kind of get get everybody integrated into the team there. Um, so let's go ahead and turn our attention to the um, to the uh, the Chelsea um, match, which you know I, I think they were strong favorites against Southampton. Though Southampton has been playing some good ball. Um, Harshell, walk us through that, please. This was another. I mean. You, you think that Chelsea would win this, if not easily, they, they should be winning this. But again, it's been a theme of this, of this Premier League season where teams have just sort of come back and clawed away, you know, two goal, even three goal deficits. And we've we've seen that happen multiple times and that happened at Stamford Bridge as well. In terms of the positives for Chelsea, I think um, Timo Werner played fantastically, especially in the first half. Again, it's it's also down to the fact that Southampton have used a very high line this season, so that plays into his hands a little bit because I think he's one of the best players in the world at running in behind and timing his runs. And then when he's one-on-one, -on -one, again, he's one of the best finishers. So that sort of worked out well when he scored his first goals in, in England and that gave him a lot of confidence. Havertz played well. Uh, even Mason Mount was good. And then I think Ziyech, when he came on, showed why sort of, you know, he's, he's so highly regarded because he, he did have had a bit of class and I think he will improve as he gets more time in England. But again, it was a case of defensive lapses for uh, Chelsea. The, the goal that Che Adams scored where Zuma, that back pass to Kepa left him in no man's land. And even though I think that goes down as a Kepa error in terms of that, in terms of errors leading to goals, it's been attributed to Kepa. But I, I genuinely think it was Zuma's fault more than Kepa because he left him completely stranded. He couldn't, like Kepa couldn't really come out to claim the ball because it wasn't hit hard enough, nor could he stay back because Adams was running onto him. And then it was just farcical in terms of the way they conceded that goal. And uh, even the first goal that Danny Ings scored, you saw how uh, they gave the ball away in midfield in a very dangerous area and the ball was slipped through for Ings to score. So it's the same thing that we've spoken about with Chelsea last season as well, where it's the defensive side of the of the game that's letting them down and that's where Lampard really needs to focus because they're scoring the goals but they're also conceding way too many. Dre, what's your what's your take on, on Chelsea and them literally having to smash all these world-class attackers into uh, five or six slots? I mean, how have you seen that evolution? Uh, yeah, it's been, it's been exciting to watch actually. I mean, I'm not a huge Chelsea fan but um, over the years, you know, I've, I've enjoyed watching them for the different attackers they have. I mean, Hazard, I thought was one of my favorites recently for them, but, um, no, I mean, I, I, they've obviously, I think they've figured out 
uh, for the most part, the attacking piece and, and how they're going to go forward. I think defensively, there's where they're going to struggle. And this game is another sign of the Premier League is not a league where any game is clear cut. Any game is, you know, a, a guaranteed three points, as, as we like to say sometimes. So Chelsea's always going to create goals and, and, and score goals and have good chances. I think it's just the defensive aspect that they need to really sort out. And I know we've spoken about it before, Chris, but what's your... You know, what's your take on on, on Kepa now, and, and you know, how do you see that situation progressing and going forward? You know, it's heartbreaking. Uh, you know, Kepa grew up in the Basque region, Atletico Bilbao, uh, really carried that team for many years. Eighty million uh, euro transfer, uh, and you know, when keepers struggle. You're going to have your dips in confidence. Every pro player, any player is going to have those dips. And he's clearly in that downward dip. Uh, and, you know, I, I feel like Chelsea had to bring in Mindy, who was an absolute rock star um, in Ligon. Um, I don't know if he's going to be able to make the transition. Going up to the Premier League, it's not like an Allison or Ederson show up all the time and they're, they're Premier League ready. I don't know how much patience Chelsea has for he's clearly a great talent, but you know, that Zuma thing, I blame that on Zuma. He got caught. You could tell he, he didn't know whether to go forward aggressively or hang back. And I think part of that is confidence, right? He just wasn't sure what to do. He's made three, um, three key errors, uh, in the last, um, you know, since the season started, which represents, uh, a ginormous number of all the goalkeeper mistakes. I can't remember exactly, but, um, I'm not, I'm not sure if, if there's going to be a pathway back to him if, if Mindy's healthy. Um, you know, Karius is, it was another perfect example of that. And that's, but that's the position. That's why, why, why Allison and Ederson and Leno are also exceptional. Um, Harshell, what, what are, do you think that, Southampton, they were able to score three goals against Chelsea's defense. Are, is Chelsea done with kind of sorting out what its defense? Is it that their midfield's not playing enough defense and expo exposing their back line too much? Help me unpack how they gave up a league-high 54 um, goals this last season, and then it's carrying on to this season. It's a bit of both, I think, Chris. I think um, in terms of the back line, Lampard's still not sure who his best defenders are, what his best back four is, um, because they've brought Thiago Silva in, obviously, from PSG to add experience and leadership. And where he is obviously quality as well, but you've got to remember he is 35 years old. And that if you want to play a high line, which Chelsea do want to, he's not the best man for that. So you've got that, which is obviously an issue. Rudiger has obviously fallen down the pecking order at Stamford Bridge, where they were looking to get him out of the club, but they couldn't manage the deal. So he's still there, but he's not getting a game. I think Zuma is a very talented defender, but he always has this sort of mistake in him. And it's the same thing with Christensen as well. And we've already seen that this season in the game against Liverpool where Christensen got sent off. So you've got centre-backs who are either not very suited to the Premier League or are new to the Premier League, or on the other hand, are erratic. You know, they're not the kind of... Like a Van Dijk, for example, who you can rely on to basically shut the door and not and very rarely make a slip up. So 
that's where I think the issue is in terms of the backline. Another thing is where in, you are, I mean, the midfield is some, like it doesn't offer enough protection. And that's also another area where he's still trying to figure out his best combination. Because Jorginho and Kovacic are great at progressing the ball up the pitch, but they're not the best at defending counter-attacks. And that's why in this game you saw as Piliqueta started right back because Jorginho was playing on the right side of that midfield pivot because uh, rather than Reese James, you know, over Aspilicata because James is obviously the much more attacking right back. But you need to have Aspilicata in the team if you're playing Jorginho in a two-man two pivot because he doesn't have the defensive uh, ability to protect the defence. Kante is a good player and he, I mean, he is one of the best in the position. But again, I don't think he's very suited to playing in a four in this sort of a midfield because he's he usually presses high up the pitch. He's aggressive. Ideally, Chelsea needs someone who can sit in front of the defence, which is why they were trying so hard to get Declan Rice in. They don't have that sort of profile in their midfield. And that's so it's it's the question of Lampard not having the sort of player or the or the right kind of profile that he wants, both at centre back and midfield. And I think because of that. Chelsea will struggle defensively this season as well. Unless he can coach someone into a new sort of role, I think they will still struggle. So they got a tough week, right? They've got Sevilla uh, in Champions League, and then they've got Man United. Uh, so uh, they're going to have their their defense. They're going to have to get their reps in um, pretty quickly this week. Um, let's go ahead and switch to the Arsenal Man City uh, match and. Dre, why don't you lead off and just tell what your your top of line perceptions of that game is? Um, I, I think at the end of the day, Man City just kind of, you know, their quality showed through. Um, they were clinical, and then you know they scored a, they scored a good goal, and I think that kind of just made the difference. Just you know who took their chances, and then you look through the game, and Arsenal had a few clear cut chances. Aubameyang had one, Saka had one, and you know it just failed to convert, and and that obviously made the difference in the game. So. Uh, you know, I thought it was a good watch. Obviously, Pep and Arteta are going to, you know, understand each other quite well and, and know what kind of ideas they're looking to to see on the field. So um, it's always nice to kind of watch that battle, I think. What's your take on how Man City was were able to compensate for KDB not being available? Um, He's it, not... He's not a player that you can really replace, you know. He's, he he does so much for them out of the midfield. So when when he's not available, obviously guys have to step up and and um you know be that much better on the day. For, and you know you lean on a guy like Sterling, you know uh, Silva, Foden, whoever it may be at the time. So um it's it's definitely tough for them to to play without him, especially. I mean, you know, they just lost David Silva as well, who was huge for them, uh, particularly when when. De Bruyne wasn't available, uh, so now they can't lean on him either. But um, you know, Pep, Pep always makes sure that you know he's got enough players that'll be able to to step up in those moments. And I think I think they did enough to to well, obviously they did enough to right. take care of that. <laughs> How about you, uh, Harshal? What what was your take on the game? Um, I mean, the first half as uh, it was just me trying to figure out what Pep was trying to do there. It's it's interesting because. Anybody who's followed City over the last few years since Pep has been manager, there have been multiple occasions, especially in the Champions League and in big games where you see a City lineup and you think, okay, this is what he's going to do or this is the formation they're going to set up in. And when the game starts, they're in a completely different shape. But you can still maybe, okay, 
within the first five ten minutes you you can still maybe get a sense of what they're doing and you get a hang of what Pep's trying to do there. I think um, with this one, fifteen twenty minutes, half an hour was not enough to try and figure out at least in the first half as to what positions the guys were taking up because when I saw that lineup I thought it was going to be a standard four three three but it was some sort of a hybrid three three four where you had uh, Nathan Ake. Um, Ruben Diaz and Kyle Walker as the three center backs, but then Rodri was dropping in as to form a four to form the back four as well. Joao Cancelo has essentially been given a free role on the right. I saw him play as a center mid. I saw him play as the right back. I saw him play as the right winger. All in the space of that half, Mares was probably the only one who was in his traditional position at right wing because you had Sterling playing. I mean, not as a number ten, but Sterling was playing behind Aguero, who returned for this game. So Aguero is your centre forward. Sterling was playing behind him. Uh, Phil Foden was playing as a left winger, hugging the touchline on the left. And then obviously you had Bernardo Silva in midfield. So it was just—I um, mean, it worked out obviously because they got the goal and this—they uh, won the match. But this is this has been quite noticeable from Pep, where he tries to sort of come up with a tactical innovation or something new in the big games. And this has already caused them quite recently in the game against Lyon in the Champions League when it restarted. He went with the back five only to match up with Lyon's back five when arguably it wasn't necessary. Lyon don't possess enough of an attacking threat for him to have gone with the back five, but he did so, and they lost that game. And that's not the only example. He's done this multiple times throughout his career at Bayern, at Barcelona, and at City, where it's almost a sense of he's trying to be too clever. I mean, I'm nobody to say that he's too clever, but. At times, it feels like he could just stick to what he does nine out of ten times, and they will win the game nine out of ten times. So it was definitely interesting to see what they were doing in terms of how they lined up and the roles that players were picking up. But I'd argue it wasn't necessary. So here's my take. Um, first of all, I think Man City has had tremendous injury problems, and that hasn't, you know, uh, Pep's always downplays that because he realizes he's got one of the most expensive payrolls in all of world football. But you had Laporte, Aguero, Jesus, uh, Gundogan, right? Um, Silva uh, was out for a bit, yeah, just returned, right? So you're you're missing. And then, of course, you got KDB on top of all that. And so you've got a back line that really doesn't know each other. They've been together for maybe three weeks. I actually thought if there was a time that Arsenal was going to be able to beat Man City, I, I forecast a 2-1 game where Arsenal was going to win um, on this because I wasn't sure where the creativity was going to come from Man City. But what Dre said earlier was spot on. They just, they've got the quality, right? And they just manufactured it and Sterling was able to, it, you know, it, it was a nice team team goal effort on that. Um I am a little disappointed with with Arsenal. Um, you know, I, I like that they have a really clear style of play. You know what they stand for. They're being really intentional. They're going to take that three hundred thousand pounds a week or three hundred five a week um, off their payroll in another year, uh, where they're going to be able to fill in some more gaps. But defensively, I thought they did. They've done extraordinarily well in the last few weeks. What I don't like is the fact that. Uh, Pepe or Aubameyang, their average position for most of the game was on their own 35-yard line, right? And I just, I am not, you know, I, I, I don't have the coaching badges 
to indicate why you still wouldn't put a striker up at midfield just to drag two players off so you still have a numerical advantage. But it was very strange seeing the center backs of Man City um, basically uh, holding uh, holding off at the 40-yard line. It, it looked like a training uh, a training um, uh, session for me. So, Harshal, what, 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 any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, it was curious to see that he didn't start with Lacazette or Inkitia. The front mm-hmm. three was Pepe, Villian, and uh, Aubameyang. And Aubameyang was on the left, and Villian was sort of playing false nine or whatever, you know. So maybe, I mean, I can understand that that was done with an with an aim to try and get. Uh, more numbers in midfield and also maybe to try and sit on top of Rodri so that he couldn't dictate. But I mean, the way Pep set up, and there's no way Arteta would have known this, but the way Pep set up, uh, Rodri was dropping so deep, almost becoming a centre-back, so that so then that Billion's role was sort of negated in that in that respect. So yeah, I thought that he could have, Arteta definitely could have gone with the striker to provide more sort of cutting edge and at the same time, as you said, drag a defender away or just occupy a defender to maybe create space for someone else. But um, again, it comes back, uh, as you said, uh, at least Arsenal have a defined template, a defined sort of style of play, a process in place. And I think that that at the moment, I wouldn't say it's more important than results, but having that foundation is what will get them results sooner rather than later. And they have been getting that. So and I, I, I would be pretty optimistic about that. So, Dre, I want to ask you this question because I, I thought about you when I was watching the game in that Man City was pressing up with look like six or seven players in the attacking third and the buildup with Arsenal. And for some reason, Arsenal, you know, they, they did have, I think they were going to Tierney on the left. Uh, they could chip it all over to him. But what I don't get is uh, when you have – 60, 65% of one team up on your attacking third, why you don't go ahead and, and, and go for the long ball a bit. And I, I wonder why Lacassette, who, who is more of a target striker like that, why he came on so late. I mean, help us unpack because I know that the, the playing style that for North Carolina FC is, is a lot of pressing. Help us understand what's going on in, in Arsenal's head on them trying to get it out of their own um, defensive third. Yeah, um, I think I think just the biggest thing is when when you work so much on a particular style of play, you kind of you buy into it and you really believe in that. So I think part of that for Arsenal is they expect and they anticipate to be pressed and and to have numbers you know so high up on them and. If you can play out of that, which in moments we've seen, particularly, you know, they did it against City in the Cup, um, then you kind of expose the other team on the other side of the field. You'll be up numbers, most likely, and and headed straight to goal. So I think the idea is just to to buy into what you do and, and kind of believe in that and and not be so quick to shy away from it just because, you know, a team may press you, whatever the case may be. And obviously for us as, as watchers and, and, and viewers, we kind of, think it's peculiar a little bit that they'll still do it but um i think just being in the system they 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 feel strongly about how they play and they believe so they'll they'll just keep doing it okay good 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 well so let's go ahead and start turning our attention to um matches that are coming up uh let's do some uh previews um uh 
I'm being somewhat facetious because I know that Harshell is going to want to talk for a few minutes about Man United and Newcastle. Um, otherwise, he's going to have to spend more time with his therapist this week. So, uh, Harshell, you've got the uh, you've got the uh, the mic on this one. Fire away. It was it was a good performance in the sense that you could see that there was a lot more energy, a lot more desire, and that United were. I mean, the, the, the tempo of the game was much better than it was against Spurs. And the changes that Ole made, I think, made a big difference in that regard. He brought in um, Fred and McTominay in midfield, and those two immediately give you a lot more energy and discipline, as well as very good pressing, which Pogba and Matic don't. So I think that was instantly an improvement in midfield. Mata and I thought Mata and Fernandez worked beautifully. And the two of them were interchanging passes, moving around. And just, I thought it was a real joy to watch the two of them in, sort of link up with each other. Uh, and there was a late flurry of goals where United went from 1-all to then win the game 4-1. And I thought Fernandez's goal especially was superb in terms of the movement and one-touch passing that went on and some of the, the tricks that happened, you know, where uh, Fernandez himself sort of started the move in United's own half, back healing it to Van Der Beek, who then sent it to Mata, Mata sent out a pass towards Rashford who drew the defender, backheeled it into Fernandez who then scored from an acute angle, right? So that that sort of invention and, and uh, I'd say creativity is what Ole wants from his attackers and we've seen that last season. So it's good that there were signs of it in this game as well. Uh, defensively, I thought, I don't really think Newcastle posed too much of a threat but United were able to cope with it. Not with, I mean, the, the early goal was a freak. I mean, it, I actually thought Luke Shaw was in a really good position and he was just unlucky that it came off his boot at such an angle that it flew into the net and they had no chance. Uh, Maguire, I thought, had a good game. He scored and otherwise, obviously, he had uh, he looked calm and that's a good thing because he's had a really, really tough couple of weeks and not just a couple of weeks, he's had a really tough summer with everything that happened in Greece. So, all in all, I think it was a good way to bounce back from that 6-1 defeat. And uh, this week is really crucial now because there's PSG in the Champions League and then uh, Chelsea next week. Dre, what's what's your sense? I mean, do you think that the that Manu's offense is getting settled in a bit? Yes and no. Uh, I think you know when you look at when you look at their schedule, for example, Newcastle is probably going to be one of the easier teams on there. Um, for me, I was looking to see them bounce back from from the Tottenham defeat and just kind of see how they would act, uh, especially coming out of the break. Um, so after, after going down early, like you, like Arshal said, it was pretty unfortunate, but after, after going down early, I thought they, um, you know, it was encouraging to see that they would play in, in, in the manner which they did and, and, and create as many chances as they did. And obviously, you know, two or three goals late on, um, may not clearly reflect how, how the game went, but, um, you know they've got they've got attacking players with, with Fernandez and, and Greenwood and Rashford and Martial who are all capable of making things happen at any moment in time. So um, it's always nice and enjoyable to watch them, and hopefully they can keep going and and have two or three players with you know double digit goals and um, and really kind of push that team forward to to challenge for the championship. Yeah, I mean, I I, I will say that in the next two and a half weeks, they're going to have to really steal themselves and hope that the defense is crystallized and that mm -hmm. everybody knows what they're doing from an attacking perspective with PSG, Chelsea, Leipzig, 
arsenal. Um, that's that's as probably the fiercest next couple of weeks of any any uh, certainly any team in the Premier League. I mean, I would say Liverpool is second in that, but uh, they're they're going to have have some work ahead of them on this. Um, Just, all right, now let's uh, uh, go ahead. Quick. Yeah. Out of curiosity, Harshal, do you do you see them getting out of that Champions League group? I'll be honest, Jay. I it, when the group came out, when the draw was made, I, it's it's one of the worst draws United could have had. <laughs> honestly, it, it honestly, I I wouldn't be surprised if United finished third, go into the Europa League because PSG, Mbappe, Neymar, everybody, Di Maria, all of those guys. I mean, it's never going to be easy to beat them. And Leipzig are a really really good well-coached team as well. So this is the group of death in that regard. So I honestly would not be surprised if United finished third. Or I mean, I don't think they'll finish fourth, but could finish third and go into the Europa League. Well, good. Well, let's switch our, ch- our attention to the previews. Um, Harshal, what, what's your quick take? And we talked about this a bit last week, but Leeds-Wolves. What are the two or three things you're going to be looking for for that game on Monday? I'll just preface this by saying that the international break sort of wreaked havoc with both teams in, in some sort of way. Portugal, because of Cristiano Ronaldo's positive COVID test, obviously everybody in the Portugal squad needed to get tested. They've all tested negative so far. So hopefully Wolves won't really be affected too much because they all, they all have a lot of Portuguese players. But um, that did maybe play a bit of havoc with their sort of schedule. Leeds have lost a couple of players to injury. They've lost Liam Cooper, their captain, who plays for Scotland. I don't know if he's going to be fit for this game. Uh, they've lost a couple of others as well, who I can't remember at the moment, but they've, they've basically got a couple of injury concerns, which have cropped up during the international break. So again, Bielsa is, we've spoken about this on the podcast as well. He is one of the most uh, uh, idealistic coaches out there. He rarely ever changes his way of style of play. And on the other hand, Nuno is actually trying to change Wolves' approach to the game this season, where he's trying to play a bit more expansive and not really rely on the counter-attack. He wants the team to have more possession and um, not sit back and defend all the time. So it'll be interesting to see how far along they are in that regard in terms of their tactical evolution for Wolves and for Leeds. It's just a question of how they've managed to come back after the international break, whether they managed to get their best players or, or the most fit players on the pitch and then let you know Bielsa's system and, his, and the energy and the, the sort of fitness levels he's built up in those players to keep up that high press over 90 minutes. Um, that could be enough to overwhelm Wolves. So I'm, I'm go- I, I think it could be a, a, a pretty good game to watch and leads to maybe nick it in terms of getting all three points. Yeah, it's certainly the hipster um, uh, match of the week. And uh, yeah. I will tell you, I, what I can't get over is how much Bielsa news uh, continues to come out, you know. Carlo Ancelotti says he'd love to take uh, take um, uh, Bielsa out to dinner and have a, a bottle of wine and talk about football. Um, things like the random acts of kindness he's doing in Yorkshire. You just you don't hear that from some of the from uh, a lot of folks. Even like like a Klopp. I mean, it's just it's fascinating. And hearing him speak in post game interviews is almost like hearing a shaman speak uh, or a philosophy professor than a football um manager so uh that's very interesting um they do they are going to be turning around fairly quickly uh you know next weekend and playing aston villa 
who are, as we speak, they're tied 0-0 with Leicester. Harshal, any thoughts on where are these guys going to end up? Are they legit? Uh, are they mid-table? How, how are they going to fit in the Premier League uh, with as few data points as we have right now? We've, again, something we've touched on <clears throat> earlier on the podcast is that this season is not going to be like any other. It's going to be um, messy. It's going to be, you're going to see results like we've been seeing so far, you know, where teams are scoring goals for fun, coming back from two goal, three goal deficits to tie games and win games. And that basically what I think, and I've spoken about this earlier, is that this could be a season where, you know, we could have another Leicester type triumph where an unfancy team takes the title because and even more so now with Van Dyke out for seven to eight months, it's it's probably the best time again for some of the one of those, you know, smaller, not smaller, I'd say, but one of the say top six contenders or so to maybe steal a march on Liverpool and go away with the title. So Everton, maybe Villa, uh, maybe Leicester again, uh, Leeds, I wouldn't say are, are title contenders, but you know, all these guys who are mid-table and maybe trying to punch above their weight, this could be the season where they could make a top four or a top six or even challenge for the title because of how messy it's been. We're going to have a, a really exciting game um, uh, coming up, um, Trey. What's your first takes on the Chelsea Man United match? Firstly, I think I think you know with the way that Chelsea's been attacking and, and Man U struggles defensively, I think Chelsea is going to be the favorite for me in that match coming up. Um, I'm sorry, Hushal. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to look forward to it. I think it's going to be an exciting game for the neutral. Those games usually tend, uh, turn out to be that way. And, um, you know, I think it'd probably be an end-to-end game because I spoke about many struggles, but they both struggled defensively recently. So hopefully there's a lot of chances created and, and a free-flowing game on both sides. And, and we get to see, a you know, two heavyweights really punching back and forth. Um, Dre, what's, uh, I imagine you've had your share of, of two matches a week, uh, sort of, uh, experiences. Man U's going to have to, they're going to be playing, um, PSG and then they're showing up to play Chelsea. How, how's the turnaround going to be on that? Hopefully, hopefully it goes well. I mean, a lot of that is mentality. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for those players, I'm sure it takes nothing to get them up for a Champions League match. That's, you know, those are very exciting, especially against, such a high quality team and then uh Chelsea's always a you know a rival for them in the Premier League so I think they'll be excited for that one as well um yeah so you know they they have all that's necessary to be able to recover in a pretty quick span of time so I think mentally they'll be they'll be up for both games and hopefully they they go show it Harshal what do you what are the two or three things you're going to look at and are there any particular matchups you think we should pay attention to I don't know if Edinson Cavani will play against Chelsea. His quarantine ends tomorrow, so he's in contention to be on the bench for the game against PSG. But it is more likely, I think, that he will make an appearance at uh, against Chelsea because he'll have had a full week of training with the team and all of that. So I'm not saying he'll have a huge impact on the game, but I want it'd be interesting to see if he gets game time and if he does how he does and how he settles into the Premier League because he's been an elite level finisher. At the Europe, I mean, you know, at the European level for the last ten years or so, Serie A, Ligue all of that, even at Champions League level. So, it's it's a lot like the Zlatan transfer that happened three, four, years, or, you know, a few seasons ago, where he may not arguably be at the peak of his powers, but he's still good enough to provide a, a bit of a lift to the to United, especially 
in the short term because Martial is suspended, so they're not going to have Martial again against Chelsea. Um, in terms of matchups, it I, I, again I want to see if Alex Telles comes in for Luke Shaw at left back, and then if he does, he he probably be be up against Ziyech or maybe even Callum Hudson Odoi. I don't know who Lampard will go for. So that left hand side of United's defense with Maguire there as well, and then you've got Havertz playing number ten, rotating. That side is going to be pretty uh, key to both Chelsea's attacking ambitions and how United are able to cope defensively. So, as Dre said, you know, both teams are struggling defensively and uh, they both have a lot of good attacking players. So, this could, it, I think it's going to go one of either way. Either it's going to be a dull, boring game, which you get sometimes between these big clubs, or it's going to go the other way and going to be an end-to-end, you know, two-all sort of a game. So, let's see which one we get. So one of the the next games to preview um, would be the Liverpool Sheffield United game, which uh, has probably escalated up a bit because, um, in addition to having a, a busy week, they're going to have to go without their starting centre back as well as their their first string keeper. Um, anything to pay attention to this, Harshell? What, what are any couple points besides those for? Sheffield United has really, really struggled, and I think people are already starting to talk about uh, the, you know, the one brilliant year and then the relegation. Um, I'm hopeful that that's not the case. I'm hopeful that Ryan Brewster is able to provide some pep. I don't think he's going to be able to do that uh, with against Liverpool uh, for obvious reasons. Um, but you know, I just any 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 notes on that game? Um, I think Liverpool will have more than enough to beat Sheffield United. Yeah, and this is for two reasons. As in, obviously Liverpool have their own quality as well. They even without uh, obviously Van Dijk, and they might not have Thiago as well. Who, if lest we forget, he got injured um, in the Everton game as well. Richarlison was sent off for that tackle, and he's apparently got an injury as well, which could potentially keep him out of that game. So. Even without those two guys, they have enough quality. You know, Salah and Mane look absolutely fit and at their best as they have over the last couple of seasons. And they have the rest of the guys are also good enough. So while there is that, it, Sheffield United haven't really hit the levels that they hit last season. So I don't really see how they can stop Liverpool from scoring and score their goals themselves. Even today against Fulham, for example, they only managed to draw one all, and even that was because. Fulham missed a penalty and then they scored from a penalty right at the end. So it's not like they're creating too many chances and uh, it's going to be difficult for them in this particular game. And I think even the rest of the season, because it does look like a bit of second season syndrome where it's they're not looking like they were last season. Okay. Trey, what, what's your take going to be uh, on the Arsenal-Leicester um, matchup? Uh, Arsenal, how are they going to do in terms of bouncing back? What, what's your take on what you're going to look for in this match? Uh, yeah, this is another match where, you know, Arsenal's tended to struggle over the last few years against teams in the top six. Um, so I think it's, it's going to be crucial and, uh, you know, a big three points to fight for. So I'm excited to see. I wouldn't necessarily say how they bounce back. I mean, obviously they lost to Man City, but, um, you know, wasn't a, wasn't a terrible performance by any means. So, um, you know, Arsenal's going to, going to go into it confidently, I, I believe. And, Hopefully, look to take three points from the game. Good. Any thoughts on that, Harshal? I'm actually interested to see how Arteta manages to <clears throat> sort of bring in Thomas Partey into that midfield. He brought him on for about 10, 12 odd minutes in the game against City. He's obviously the big money purchase of the summer. 
and i think once he is fit and um, up to speed with how arsenal play he will come straight into that 11 so he's a really good player i really liked whatever i saw of him when he was at atletico so cuz he he obviously he he can win the ball back and he's got energy but he's a good passer as well so it's not just that he'll do the defensive side of things he can start attacks for arsenal so i mean i think honestly a midfield trio of chebayos uh, granit jaka and partey could be a very good trio for arsenal going forward for the rest of the season depending on the lineup they use so i don't know if he'll play this game i mean either start or come off the bench but in terms of long term trend and generally what i'm looking at from arsenal he's one player i have a really sort of keen eye on so let's see if he gets game time against leicester so dre i want to ask you this question the center attacking midfielders it seems like that role's evolved in the last few years and i'm still trying to get my head around the kind of what is the new model for that can you give us your reflections on on that since you play the position and what what what's going on there now in the premier league yeah um it's a tough one i think because growing up the the number 10s that i watched were you know the likes of zidane um you know ronaldinho for example even ozil um more recently than those two but um they've always been known as kind of the luxury player the the free role and i think that's been phased out a little bit as uh as the game has evolved so you, you get more of a a hybrid player so for example i mean hashal you just mentioned the midfield three with sabayos being the most attacking he'd probably be the the number 10 in that uh you know you have kdb um havers plays plays that role for chelsea so it's a little bit um it's a little bit more of a hybrid i think now than than it has been before in terms of just you know all out attacking guy you know free role um and unfortunately you know we're losing talented players like in Ozil or or Delhi Ali for example for Tottenham uh we're kind of missing out on them a little bit but i think it's just how the games progressed okay uh, how about what what's your take Arshel yeah as jay said it's it's about how the game has progressed where at the top level you don't really see teams who sit back and defend like even how Mourinho used to do for example 10 years ago when he won the champions league with Inter Milan that backs to the wall defend defending approach and then you go and get a goal on the counter so that doesn't really happen at any of the big teams you know you're expected to play expansive attacking football but at the same time when you don't have the ball you're expected to press and the aggression or the the intensity of the press can differ but you're still expected to defend from the front so that notion of you know you used to have a luxury number 10 you know the likes of Ozil or even 5 or 10 years ago you had Juan Román Riquelme Pablo Aymar the South American number 10s who used to sort of just stay in that goal not really do much running off the ball but then when they get the ball they can sort of devastate the opposition you don't have that anymore so even the creative guys if you've seen how the game has developed have have either moved deeper or they've gone into wider areas so James Rodriguez Juan Mata so to take two examples from the Premier League they're both playing in wide positions on the right they're not really playing as a number 10 if you look at deeper positions uh Jay mentioned Chebayos you've got uh I'd say uh, Kevin De Bruyne and David Silva for example a couple of years ago when Pep first came in at City he was using them as sort of free number 8s as guys who were part of a number 3 playing deeper who had the creativity to sort of damage or cause uh, damage in the opposition's half but also had to do their share of defending so it's a case of you know the 
I wouldn't say the the creativity has gone anywhere. It's still there. It's just that it's coming from other areas, and players have to adapt and shift to those positions because that pure number ten doesn't really exist anymore. Interesting, um, Trey. As we're kind of five weeks into the season, what are some observations you have, and what are things you're going to be looking at going forward? Uh, I think the biggest thing is just you know the the trend of results. Obviously. The the big teams that were that we're looking at aren't winning games as as much as you'd expect. I mean, Man U is still in the bottom half of the table, which is I think unusual to see, obviously. So, um, I think you know the 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 competition from top to bottom has been really good so far. And one of the biggest issues in the Premier League is just kind of finding a way to balance that and to to maintain that um, that level of play over the course of a season for those smaller teams because obviously they don't have the same squad depth as 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 a Chelsea would or as a Man U would. So um I think that'll that'll obviously come into play at some point and and be important. But for right now, I mean it's just exciting to be able to watch. I mean it was Tottenham was up three nil earlier and uh you know ended up tying three three. That's you know, I, I would have never guessed that. So uh no it's just exciting to to watch right now and, and be a part of and Hopefully, we continue to get exciting games to to, to uh, finish out the season. Yeah, I just can't get over how you know we started the top of the pod was how the underdogs have either tied or won, um, particularly in the top six. And Tottenham, you kind of thought after fifteen minutes or so, it's like, all right, I can go oh, do go do some yard work or clean up the kitchen, as my wife wanted me to do, and no. Right. Um, last 10 or 12 minutes, I thought I was going to watch the uh, the Gareth Bale show. Right. See him make a couple of interesting moves. And all of a sudden, uh, West Ham scores a flurry in, in 13 minutes. Um, Harshal, what, what are you going to look at um, in, the, in the next few weeks, uh, particularly as Champions League kind of lays itself on top of Premier League responsibilities? I'm going to be looking at Liverpool very closely to see how they cope with without Van Dyke and obviously Allison as well in this period. Because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, the stats are just mind-boggling when you look at them. Van Dyke has not missed a single Premier League minute since January 2018, since he signed for the club. He's played every single minute of every single Premier League game. And that's 93 games. They've won 72 of them and lost just seven. And, they, and Van Dyke himself has scored 10 goals in those 93 games as well. So... It's a huge loss in terms of obviously his own ability and the organization and the, and he's improved the likes of Matip and Gomez when they've played alongside him. So this is probably the best time for any other team to play Liverpool, uh, especially if, if you're looking to score goals against them. And uh, they, they don't really have the depth either. I mean, Gomez and Matip are both quite injury prone themselves as well. So that could mean then... Uh, Klopp having to move Fabinho at centre-back to cover for them at times. Because other than that, he's just got some of the kids from the youth academy to fall back on. So that's going to be really interesting. And just in general, as a wider trend, because we're going to start having Champions League, Europa League, group stages and all of that, uh, just fatigue and uh, how teams are able to rotate and sort of keep up their performance levels. And obviously, again, as Jay said, it's the bigger teams who are obviously the ones playing in those competitions in the first place. But they're the ones who have the squad depth to be able to deal with this. So it'll be interesting to see how, for example, Solskjaer rotates his teams, what Lampard does in the Champions League and Premier League and so on and so forth. So I just hope that we don't really see too many injuries. But uh, I, I think this season is one where we will see 
you know, muscle injuries happen a lot more. And then obviously you've got COVID where people could get ruled out because of that. So it's that disruption which teams need to be able to manage. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. My sense is if I could treat the teams as almost stocks, you know, I see Man United and Chelsea uh, just don't know what to do um, with with them, right? I mean, you think Tottenham is maybe a little bit on the uptick. Liverpool could be um, uh, certainly Van Dyke and Allison are worth two or three games, right? And and or two or three wins, I should say, um, over the course of a thirty-eight game season. Um, I do think that Man City, uh, as they get healthy again, um, could it'd be interesting to see if they can retransition back in healthy players. The Sergio Aguero, the Sergio Aguero that we remember, right? Because. That's a big deal. Um, I've felt that KDB was not able to create without a, a really advanced striker to um, to kind of finish off those three yard, those you know those diagonal crosses. Um, and I'm going to be curious to see how Liverpool's offense does because I think that Virgil Van Dyke creates a degree of confidence. Those the diagonal passes he's able to do to kind of open things up for the midfield. And I wonder if Trent Alexander-Arnold is really going to be able to um, to kind of pick it back up to where, frankly, last year it seemed like he was um, uh, creating more of the opportunities, dangerous opportunities, than Robertson has. Um, so, you know, kudos to Robertson for doing that. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I just I don't have a, a clear a clear thought on on where how Chelsea's going to evolve. That's something I'm I just feel like there's some pieces missing. And Man United, I think they've got all the pieces, but I don't I don't see that it's clicked yet. So um, you know, I, I do think that uh I'm all I'm a huge fan of analytics and things like that, but chemistry and the level the of effort of play just counts for so much in the game. And um you know, we'll, we'll be able to see, we're going to see if who's going to be able to bring that. And hopefully I'm thinking that the mid and lower table teams are going to continue to bring that uh, and frankly, make it a lot more interesting league than kind of the, the win by 20 points sort of leagues that seem to predominate um, in this day and era. So gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Um, we'd like to thank our sponsor, the EPL Prospectus, Moneyball for Football, Analytics Plus Eye Candy, available at www.thinkingfan.com and on Amazon. Join us for our next Football Thinking Fans podcast. For now, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao.